when you launch a campaign, figuring out which writers and editors you want to connect with so that you can really get the most reach out of that. It's not just posting something, it's really maintaining relationships for a launch. Like, if your whole campaign goal is to be featured in the New York Times, how is that going to be accomplished? Welcome to uh, Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Matthew Kishen. Matthew is a digital strategist with a background in architecture and writing. He currently serves as digital media manager at ZGF, and he works with teams across the firm's six offices to tell stories about design and reveal people behind the buildings. Thank you so much, Matthew, for joining me. Thanks for having me, George. To start, it would be great to just have a little bit of an overview about, um, you know, your career to date, how you got started in the more of the communications and marketing side. Would love to uh, share that. Yeah, so I uh, come from a long line of sensitive creative types. Mom's an artist. Dad went to architecture school for a year, but wound up as a computer programmer. So there was a lot of characters uh, across the childhood who are artists and architects. Um, and then landed at Syracuse University in their architecture program. Wasn't at the time, you know, it's like 18 and wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do, but I thought, oh, I can do everything. So transferred to art school and literally tried to do is pretty much everything that I possibly could as far as trying to fashion myself as like a Buckminster Fuller type. But of course, I kind of lacked the math component there. But in any case, um, after kind of bouncing around, I had a number of professors who were like, you know, you really should be a writer. And on the the, uh, fifth time that happened, I was on a program in Prague in a uh, drag bar. And finally, someone took me and said, like, no, you really, the the writing thing's probably better for you. So I was like, all right, well, you know, take me off the dance floor for this. So it must be important. Amazing. And um, I returned for my senior year and developed a writing portfolio. Um, I knew I wanted to cover developments and news uh, for art and design. And as soon as I had my thesis published, which essentially was like a critique of design school, I sent out the interviews that I had conducted. Um, As part of that thesis, I had interviewed people I had interned for. So gallery dealer, uh, design gallerists, independent designers, So I used all those interviews to get published in print pretty fast. Um, And then once I kind of had a few clippings, was able to build on that where I landed at Architizer uh, in New York, followed by Dwell um, as a digital editor there. And then uh, finally really wanted to get into and be at a firm as much as I loved kind of the constant pulse pounding chaos that a publication brings and wound up at Gensler running their social media at a firm-wide level, and now uh, at ZGF working, uh, as you mentioned, with the six offices, um, focused on essentially content marketing, telling stories about the firm, bringing that to the forefront, and uh, you know managing our uh, suite of tools with our team, of course, from the website to social media, and really putting more of a journalistic twist on how we position and message ourselves. So as of in just a month or two will be my two year anniversary. So that's how uh, I've landed at uh, ZGF. So you're going from a place like Architizer, well, and then then going to firms. 
what what were the biggest contrasts? I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the kind of daily pulse or, you know, maybe the hectic scramble of, of journalism. But other than that, was there anything culturally or anything that you felt you had to get adjusted to or? I think, you know, uh, the speed was certainly one of them. Um, you know, going through like a fact checking process can definitely be time consuming and stressful. Um, I think I probably jumped through a lot more hoops to get things signed off at firms rather than, hey, I'm going to publish you. So, you know, that's kind of not the most exciting answer. I think what's been very similar in general has been just really a passion for what people do. I think working with colleagues who are writers and editors, everybody had a shared passion for design. And I think that ran a wide range. That's certainly similar at firms, but I think there's a little bit more like, rah, 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 where, where this firm or that firm kind of attitude, which is, you know, it's one firm. You're, I'm not writing about, you know, 12 on a given basis. So, you know, overall, not really too much of a difference other than I think just different, <laughs> different uh, decision-making processes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, to unpack that a little bit, where do you sit within, uh, let's say, uh, you can use Gensler or ZGF as an example, but just very curious, like where does a role like, let's say, against specifically, uh, like social media rest within the team, the broader marketing team? And I'm curious about the same with your current role at ZGF. Yeah, so with Gensler, um, there was a firm-wide marketing team, and then there were the local and regional teams. Um, so we provided support there. I reported to the firm-wide director of marketing in that team, and we were kind of dispensed accordingly. There was a handful of in-house publications that we were in charge of that then the local and regional teams would use. Um, And then we oversaw the website, social, and formed essentially like the go-to resources if people were going after a pursuit or trying to get press. It's, you know, now uh, going from like 6,000 people to about 700 or um, I can't remember how many people Gensler had. It was two, at some point it was 2,000, it was 4,000. Yeah, it's just 2,000 people to a couple uh, zeros. Yeah. yeah, a couple hundred now. Um, kind of a similar setup. Um, I report to our director of communications and work with the six offices to, you know, form stories, connect with press, and, um, you know, create those resources. I think, you know, I'd say right off the cuff, just our, our main blog. And then those are used by the marketing teams or the PR teams to share with uh, stakeholders. So I'd, I'd say it's, it's been that case for the last four years. So it's, it's kind of fluid. It's kind of a horizontal position in some ways because architecture is a team sport. So... Some, you know, if we're doing something in Portland, we have to understand what that market is and that PR manager and PR coordinator are going to be the expert on that. So how can we position something on the website or in a story or position a story to press or to a client that's going to be, that's going to have the most impact. So as a, as a firm wide resource, what are the kind of protocols in place for you to be effective, right? With considering the fact that, let's say, you know, across six offices at any given moment, there's a lot of products that are happening right at the same time. 
when, how do you triage that kind of demand on your time potentially, right? Or like people, is your week well-structured or would you say that actually like you have to be in your role very nimble in this, uh, and, and react to local needs as, as, as necessary? I'd say, you know, every, the ZGF team that I work with now has been very good about being nimble for firm-wide initiatives and campaigns. So it makes everything actually really smooth. Uh, so I would say, you know, having been based in New York, but have colleagues across the country, um, at Gensler, across the world, um, we usually, it hasn't, uh, it hasn't really been too much of an issue. I think everyone's been very good about, uh, when we have a campaign that we're releasing, how we want to release that firm wide, um, coming up with the assets together that we can share with people who hold relationships or looking to develop new ones with clients or um, partners. So I think it's always been like we, you know, if we're doing a campaign, usually in the form of a campaign is how we've been really able to connect everybody, um, but also listening and hearing what everyone's working on. So we can determine what's going to be the most, you know, bang for our buck. And when, when it's, you mentioned a little bit before about how, and I'll just use Portland as a market example, but let's say uh, you have a PR uh, point person in Portland, um, that person surfaces back information to you in a way that's helpful to structure a campaign. What does that information typically look like, uh, at least at the market level? Is it, is it uh, you know, uh, as an example, like at WeWork, um, you, would, you would see a lot of data being surfaced, like, like actual information as to like where businesses were located, demographics at, at a at a pretty uh, high resolution level. Uh, obviously, it's a very different sort of um, your the end customer for WeWork is very different from like what what you're trying to to go after. But I'm just very curious about what that resolution looks like. And is it yeah? So I'd say um, it tends to hinder more on qualitative data. You know, if we're going after, and that might just be interactions with um, partners and principals um, or feedback from marketing directors and marketing teams. You know, we have, we didn't get a pursuit because X, Y, Z. So can we put content on the website that's going to be, that's going to have that? So that's kind of, that's one way I think we've, the PR managers and I are, have been pretty good at staying in touch as far as when we connect on these firm-wide initiatives, whether it's landing press or, uh, you know, somebody wants to, someone has a pursuit and they want to just switch out a homepage image. So I think, uh, you know, as far as analytics go, you know, that's been something we've been honing um, for a while. Um, In general, we're going through a website refresh right now. So we're doing things from scratch that are just going to help inform everybody a lot better than our current suite of products. So I think we'll eventually have better quantitative analytics, but, uh, you know, we do a mix of, you know, I'll share this performed well on the website or this performed well on social. um, And then we combine that with what's going, what kind of the uh, whispers and murmurs happening on the ground at any given office. Yeah. Do you feel that, um, like, you know, having worked at, at Gensler, one of the largest firms, you know, in the world when it comes to, to that, and especially in the social media side, I'm sure I'm personally just so, super curious about 
what does a social media look like at an architecture firm at that scale in a way that can be either attributable back to clients that have been won or you know, maybe the KPIs for that are just very different. Maybe it's about just building general audiences without necessarily attributing directly. But I, I'm very curious to like, how did social media play out at a company like Gensler? So I would say for the work I've done at the firm, social media has always been to me like a point of entry. It's like soft sales. Um, it's a point of discovery. Um, it's a place to promote and publish and engage with followers who share the same interests, have a passion for design and position yourself to be a resource for design. I think that's, you know, that was something that uh, has always been kind of a frequent request. Um, You know, in some ways it's competitive. We want to make sure that we're putting our best work out there. So when people are just browsing along, um, which has happened before, um, someone sees Instagram calls up. Um, the frequency of that, you know, I think has been hard to measure. I have friends at various firms um, who've occasionally shared like, oh, we got someone from Instagram or this and that. I think um, at the end of the day, architecture has always been kind of uh, industry based on handshakes. So it's really important, I think, just to position yourself where you're going to, well, it's like blackjack, right? You you want to beat the house, um, but you don't know what they're going to deal Um, So you're always just anticipating to try and have the better deck. So I think that's very similar to just social media in general. You want to put yourself out there in a way that's just going to differentiate you from your competitors and tell and hopefully tell a story that's authentic to your firm and shows how well, I mean, well, shows that you're different, that you have a, a point of view, you have a great body of work and a great culture. And you mentioned storytelling, um, which is another aspect of what you do uh, on a day-to-day basis, craft stories around around buildings and stuff like that. I'm curious for where where does the strategy for storytelling begin on any given project? Basically, are, is, is, there, is there a playbook in place that helps you understand, okay, for like certain types of projects, this is the type of story that we're telling? Or are you much more nuanced and trying to figure out like what is special to that. I'm just very curious, like how do you structure that process in general across whether it was against or or CGF? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, determining what's going to resonate the most with an audience is going to be, it kind of starts from the beginning as soon as you know that the project has been accepted at the same time, once a project is completed, that may be the first time you, you know, people are willing to share about it. So I think what's important is really just to think where the story is. You know, sometimes a design sells itself. So you can really just, you don't have to embellish that much. Other times a project may not be, you know, a project may have other facets or ideas attached to it. You know, it could be more of an interior design story. You know, if you're doing a historic renovation or it's not always, you kind of have to dig. You can't just say, well, we broke ground or we acquired the project. Therefore, that's the story. What about the practitioners? Like, is there something in their wheelhouse, thought leadership that we can connect to that, show the breadth and depth of our expertise? So I think when we try and determine what makes a good story, we're always trying to think like, is, is there more than just the building? Like a lot of times I've thought, how can you bring, how can you tell the stories of the people behind the building? And with that as a, 
in telling those stories, I imagine that part of the outcome is ultimately that this story, whether it comes out as a as a blog post or as a series of other collateral assets, that's also used to arm your, I'm assuming, was it studio heads or like who, how does that help then basically prepare your, your, whether it's the BD team or, you know, studio directors, like to go out and proselytize that story or, you know, just like go out and speak the gospel in a way. Well, I think it's pretty common for people to rely on their architects um, as advisors. And I think that's, you know, it's a great way for people to hold relationships with clients or gain new ones. If, you know, you met somebody at something and you follow up with them and say like, Hey, I wrote this or, Hey, my firm put this out. It's kind of like little gestures like that, that ultimately can have a big impact. When I was at Gensler and the like umpteenth article about how the open office is dead, obviously offices are having a whole other issue now. At the time when that occurred, clients came to us and were like, well, we just designed all these open offices and now the New Yorker is saying it's bad. What do we do? And ultimately we put out a statement and we created content that could back those questions up and support people that held relationships. And ultimately we got, we got work from that. We've got some consulting jobs and we were able to, you know, I think make everybody feel comfortable that they made the right choices, which ultimately, you know, all firms are different. They have different relationships, but, you know, ultimately I think when some, you know, it's not, you know, it's hard to say what's common, but ultimately if something goes wrong um, or you have a question or, you know, design is the solution, you know, an architect should be the first person that you call up. Is, are there teams around, and when you say architects, you do you mean specifically like the studio directors or how Yeah, that- I would say like, you know, uh, people that, DGF, we actually, we have, um, we don't have like designated studios, the partners and principals who own relationships. Um, really anybody who's a relationship owner, that's what we try and uh, support. I'm also I'm sort of mapping this out in my head. I'm like seeing like there's a principal, you know, let's say Portland, there's a principal in Portland. Then there's um, around that principal, there's support from marketing PR that then helps to coordinate, right? The strategies that are being developed on a local level. So that basically is the, the assumption here that I'm making is ultimately that the principal while maybe 50% of their time is going out to get work or um, making an assumption here, but some part of their time is relegated to to getting work. They still have to have this other support vehicle behind them to be able to give them that, that material. And there has to be some visibility between the relationships that 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 principal has and the marketing team and the PR team. Right. And I'm, I'm just very curious about what that organization looks like in some way, like, you know, there's the part where it's like, okay, we got this project. Let's take the story of this project and let's find other people that need these, have these needs. What I'm trying to sort of understand is like how active of a process is this? Is it somewhat passive where it's more like, hey, here's an update, go send it out to your, you know, your contacts. Or is it, hey, we know that after this project, there's probably some new bill being passed or something else that's going to open up some sort of funding that's going to then lead to, um, these other organizations having the same need as the project that we just, we just. Yeah. Did. So it's kind of symbiotic. Like, so we try and stay in contact with everybody as frequently as possible. I think when, as far as what um, my team initiates is when we have a campaign 
or compile our resources in conversations that have been occurring in each office. That's usually been the case for we need X, Y, we need to send an e-blast off. We need to, you know, get this story out the door. You know, we, we know what, you know, this is uh, coverage and this publication is going to help, you know, support this cause um, or show or get this work out there. So I mean, all this say, you know, we have some teams in offices who do, you know, both PR and marketing. Sometimes people are exclusively marketing, sometimes they're exclusively PR. And I think it's pretty common. I think no matter what scale the architecture firm that sometimes those departments kind of are a bit of a catch-all. So I think everyone's been pretty communicative and supportive when something's down the pipeline. I think, you know, it's, it's something that's always kind of changing depending what market we're going after. But, you know, ultimately the process is what's the communication strategy? How does it support what, how we're getting RFPs, how we're going after them or how they're coming to us? And the short answer is after all that would be, what content, what marketing collateral is, uh, do we have in the hopper that we can share out or pitch to people so that we can either secure stories or keep a relationship going? Where, where do you think the biggest areas of potential evolution are? Or like, I, I'm curious about where do you also, anyways, like get your inspiration from on like on a day-to-day basis? What are you re- reading right now or what are you to be able to help you either become a better storyteller. What I found to be helpful is just following like specific uh, design writers or really any writer or journalist um, whose work I like. I kind of all, you know, I make sure to subscribe to all the newsletters, Dezine, Art Daily, um, Sight Unseen. So, you know, and also I've cultivated a network of friends who are all pretty similar fields. So I think we're pretty good at inspiring each other. I try and when I can to look outside of architecture and design, just cause you know, can look at that all the time. Yeah. Either. The echo chamber as they call it. Yeah. I mean, I love, I love movies. So I feel like, you know, I can tell you I've watched like the most movies I've ever watched over the last eight months, but I also try and see like what other industries are doing when I guess it was like five years ago, people pivoted to video say the architecture and design industry did that immediately. I think it took some time. I remember there actually was a really great series that Hugo Boss did, GQ, where I can't remember the actor, but I think it was Edgar Ramirez. And he was just going to like Crown Hall and IIT by Mies van der Rohe and doing, he did a bunch, there's like this whole Mies van der Rohe series. And I was like, oh, this is like what I've always wanted to see. So I try and think about, you know, what's, what's the end to a story? Like you can't always go like, you know, this gigantic building is so square and so much glass. It's not always the first thing that's going to attract somebody. So, you know, if you, if you care about how a building looks, you'll certainly care how a building feels. And it's really, I think, trying to connect with writing a story. That's the second best thing to actually being in it. Do you have a, a, on either a ZGF or Gensler, were there any videographers on the team or anybody that was like solely dedicated to making video? Yeah, so um, we had a we had a few people here who I would say like when when we need to you know hustle something together we can. Yeah, Gensler, we had uh, the, there was a position essentially that was a photography department. So 
um, whether it was like a firm-wide photographer or photo editor or literally a handful of photographers that were on staff, that was the case. You know, I think, you know, when you talk about branding, if, you know, and I think like uh, there was a really good article in the zine about the director of visual branding at, at Foster and Partners, you know, really what that position shows is they have a very specific look from everything from built work to renders to their website to all of that. Mm. So I think, you know, when, for people who are on, who registered for this and are listening, like, I think it's just determining who and how you want to work. We also, I've worked with a handful of other freelance photographers, and I'd say it, that's probably more common um, is that people have their go-to photographers. So I think it's also that too, finding the right partners that can help articulate that. Cause it just depends how much video production you're doing. If, if I was still in magazines, I imagine there'd be more video. Yeah. Cause I, I'm, I haven't read that interview, but I, I definitely want to look at it after. It seems like that person is like a creative, the creative director essentially of, of foster and partners curating everything that comes out. Yeah. Right. From both. It, what's interesting is like both from the, not just the, that the brand is extended itself to also the buildings in some way and, and how they're represented. Like the, the idea that there's actually creative direction around the rendering is, is fascinating. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of this at, at, at WeWork when we had the chief uh, creative officer where almost every single rendering was, uh, was approved by, by this person where it, it was like this kind of like every design element was just like redlined by this individual across mm-hmm. hundreds of buildings, which is insane. But yeah, that, that, that level of intention to be like, you know, everything has to come out a certain way because the entire atmosphere of the company has to be represented in a very cohesive way is pretty fascinating. I'm curious with with the in, in the these two instances, right? That of Gensler and ZGF, they're both large, more corporate firms. The people that they're trying to attract, in some cases, with like ZGF is very. I guess in both cases, they both have very distinct practice areas. Like Gensler is very well known in commercial office space design, ZGF being more on the in the healthcare arena. Is there any shifting attitude towards how people want to consume information in sort of the world that I navigate in? It's like, it's just, it's like constantly trying to think about like, what is that other form of content that could be very compelling that could tell the story a little bit more effectively? It's something that we're constantly struggling with or thinking about. Um, I'm very curious about where, where the potential opportunities within these industries to kind of break out and do something different? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, a lot, you know, it's not just architecture, the transition from people reading to people seeing images and getting all their information from that or reading much more significantly less words is is super common. Um, and, you know, I think from, from people getting all their news from social media as well, was something that occurred um, and, and changed the game in that people just kind of want bite-sized information sometimes. It, sometimes they want longer form stuff, but I think overall, at least for architecture and design, and this is why a lot of firms have done very well on like image-based platforms like Instagram or Pinterest, where it is so visually driven. And again, the design will tell its own story in, in that regard. So I think it's really just pushing that, like doing more original illustrations, more 
if a firm has a really strong research division mm. doing more speculative work. I mean, I think, you know, you look at, you know, more, you know, younger firms and what big has done from, you know, a thought leader perspective, as well as a content perspective, even OMA, like predating, yeah. like when people weren't, you know, when building was slow, he wrote all the books. Right. So I think there, I think that approach is still pretty relevant, no matter how old the firm is, or if you're starting or mid-career, I think what's important is really just to, sometimes we're all kind of just like reading a crystal ball. We don't know how something's going to be interpreted, but I think um, really pushing the visual language is going to continue to be something that architects will always want to do. It's some of the more fun work to do. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think to have that imagination, I think really keeping imagination alive is something I always encourage. Yeah, and, and bringing up like big and OMA is, is also fascinating in the sense that like what they both did early on was really gravitate towards content as like in, in, in different innovative ways they focused on content, like big focusing on video, using tools that were off the shelf at that time. Like I'm, I'm, speak, I'm thinking specifically about the early work with Plot where they were doing monta- like green screen montages, right? On top of like animated, uh, you know, models that they were leveraging the tools that were now very easily, cheaply accessible to them and innovating on a brand new emerging platform like YouTube. And I wonder how small firms can embrace that approach of taking chances, not just in their design work, but in the way that it's communicated in a very human level too, right? Intuitive, not heady, not just like, you know, sort of too conceptually in the clouds, but like trying to connect with people through the mediums that they're like now people are using, like, I'm very curious to see like what brand will come out to like really take ownership of TikTok or um, Snapchat, right? And like come up with new ways of engaging and creating audiences using their their work, right? Like love to see a building as a, as a Snapchat filter put out by a friend, just in a way to create a different dialogue and, and bring some more awareness to culturally, right, to these firms, which I think would be really compelling and, and generate new audiences that might not have ever thought about. I mean, I'm always con- continuously fascinated about this, the fact that like Architectural Digest has like 3.4 million views touring someone's house, right? And I just think about like, what's the firm that's going to be savvy about that and kind of like figure out a way to implant their project in there, right? It's like, after a project is done, let's say it's a really Kyle Trevor doesn't do this, but I'm just thinking about his products and how sometimes they're used as backdrops for sci-fi movies. It's like the mm-hmm. intention of taking the project and like figuring out that maybe the me- that project story can also be shared with other people in other industries that would use it as like a backdrop for a movie or something, right? Like figuring out ways to bring awareness at that level that circles back to just like, how do you get your your output out there into the world in, in more and interesting ways. I don't know. That's a little bit of a, of a, of a rant for me. Well, I think, you know, uh, I've definitely tried to pitch, like, let's create a Snapchat filter before. Let's do um, it. Let's go. So, you know, I think, you know, what that I would actually look like, I have no idea. You're not just going to turn somebody into a building. 
But but there are those famous. There's that famous uh, uh, governor. What is it? New York, the the ball picture of like all the architects wearing their buildings. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, Beaux Arts ball. The Beaux Arts ball. So I think yeah, Halloween one. It could be for Halloween. It could be. Yeah, it could. You know, it's tis the season. I think there's certain. I think it'll be really. It's going to take one person to do something like that, and everybody's going to follow. Which is usually, I think, what's happened with. You know, I think as soon as like architects were featured on TED Talks. And um, I don't know if you remember the series that Vice did a while ago. I think their partnership was with Intel. Um, they talked to all these like cre- uh, like people across music, design, theater, film. Uh, and they were, it was a really great series, which I don't know if you can find. It was the creative project. Yes, I remember that, yeah. And that was like an early kind of foreshadowing, I think, of architects being called on that. So I think like, when you're figuring out what your like PR or marketing strategy is, how you're going to position yourself as a leader, as an expert, you know, looking at, you know, staying with the times and seeing where the best, you know, where the best fit is for you, you know, in, in some degrees to like, not, you don't need to be on every single social media platform in order to get, and that, that was not common for a long time. Everybody still felt they had to like, Keep yeah. up with everything, but ultimately it's what your strategy is and what you're saying and who you're engaging with. You know, I can confidently say I've been at two firms where a lot of the time we were just getting solicited for where's my application. So ultimately, like it's not like you know, you want to make sure that you know, if you're responding to somebody that you're having a more meaningful conversation and how are you developing a relationship? And because I think it's uh, the conversion all the time is, you know, you could have a million followers, but you might really only get two or three, you know, lifetime clients. Hmm. Um, so I think understanding that too, like what's the purpose If this is just something to have fun, show the culture of your firm, then that is a great marketing tool. It will be an introduction. It will be a point of entry um, for someone to discover your work, whether they accept a job and, you know, are just kind of doing some background info or if a client is like well who are these guys like see let me uh let me go on their accounts or whatever and or see what they're posting how frequently they're updating their website so yeah i think uh it all i don't know the right answer but ultimately you want to you want to put out i think the firm you want to be um obviously sometimes you get work that's you know it's it may not be the most innovative work, but it's keeping the lights on. And if you get like one of those real like show stopping projects, then, okay, then you put that on blast or, you know, use that to attract a client. So, cause ultimately it comes down to budget, like yeah. winning relationships and having a good flow of content is ultimately, I think where you want to be. And the thing is like for smaller firms that might be sort of curious about, well, how do I even, you know, don't have enough hours in the day, don't have the budget necessarily to do this. Um, most small firms are, or all architecture firms are constantly generating content. They are content machines. Every time, every opportunity to like zoom into a detail in, in their Revit model or Revit model or AutoCAD file is like a potential screenshot that could easily be posted right on, on Instagram or, or Pinterest. Obviously, I think, I think you would agree too, is that a lot of this has to really match up with 
who your target client is. So like when you say like projecting the firm out into the world, right? Or, or you know, what the firm you want to be, it's also the firm you want to be with the right client, right? Like the, yeah. to attract the right clients that it sort of creates, it creates a, a uh, sort of a flywheel, right? The more you invest in that, the more people come to you because it's uh, less effort over time. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a good segue just to talk about analytics and how that can play into your strategy, which is, you know, you want to be monitoring what's working, what's not. You know, I think it's a little harder to monitor press. Like, you know, unless someone calls you up and say, I saw this and that, you're not, it's tricky to really kind of have a concrete answer. But I think using analytics is a way to inform your process. Like what got the most views, what had the most reach, what got the most engagement, is that something that, you know, was that as intentional as we thought it was? How do we send this message out or get this client? I think it's just, it's a mix of what, you know, establishing your business goals, when you launch a campaign, figuring out which writers and editors you want to connect with so that you can really get the most reach out of that. It's not just posting something, it's really maintaining relationships for a launch. Like, if your whole campaign goal is to be featured in the New York Times, how is that going to be accomplished? So I think it really comes down to no one's, if you're featured in the New York Times, no one's going to go, well, how many like website impressions do you have monthly? It's, it's not really the case. So I think it's really just determining what your goals are and figuring out the best metrics that are going to support it. A metric could be, okay, well, we have a sales funnel and we got X amount of business this year, or it could be we did a campaign or a big goal of ours was to get into this publication because we know it will help us. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. I think we, we have some, we have a couple questions, which I think we'll kind of uh, close off with a bit. So uh, Dennis says, uh, as, as you mentioned, I've also noticed that getting clients in architecture is very much done in person. How have you noticed things change over the last few months now that things can't be done in person? Zoom. From what I hear from project teams, you know, it's been the uh, people were worried, obviously, in the first, you know, three days of everything changing. But as long as you remain adaptive, I think, you know, it also puts everybody on the same playing field to some degree that it, in a way it has not before. I think people are, from what I can gather, people, architects, designers, firms are really kind of you know, making the best of a, of a tough situation. I think they're navigating when a client asks, okay, you need to be in person, um, ultimately safety first. So um, I, I think uh, through Zoom, through emails, everyone's through phone calls. Mm. I think we used to rely a lot on text messaging and emails, and now people are getting back on the phone. So I think it's not as a horrific response as I think, it's been, but ultimately, I think people are are making the most of this situation. I mean, you work remote, right? You currently you are working remote, yeah. So the whole monograph team works remote, and I'm I'm curious for your firm. Do you see it as the new normal? Basically, like has this this period of time now made it more have made it apparent that actually team you know things don't just like stop right like in yeah. the of I mean, work might slow down a bit, but actually the internal processes of the, of the, the company can still operate in a more hybrid model 
or in a fully remote model in this case? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think everyone will adapt accordingly. Um, architecture, from what I can understand, was never the first industry to say, yeah, work from home, you'll get your work done. What about those billable hours? But now I think that people can see they can do it. There will be some flexibility going forward. It seems, you know, it's like you give if you give somebody something, you can't just take it away. Particularly if productivity is still good and it's... Um, you know, I, I think the way that we've adapted through all of this, where everybody's like, don't come into the office, then it's very easy. But I think as far as how companies are navigating right now, it's still uncertain territory. You know, you have some companies who are like, don't come back to the office until summer 2021, where you have other offices being, I mean, I'm just saying companies in general, yeah, yeah. trying to really figure out the safest return to office plan. So by your by your measure, it hasn't really impacted the the nature of which how you communicate with your teams. Like you've seen, have you seen any any positive change? Like has it been a plus or negative or is it just case by case? Uh, I would say overall, if, well, for me, it actually hasn't changed too much actually because I do, I work a lot with people on the West Coast. So Working from home isn't has not been that much of a radical change for the work that I do. I think for some other colleagues, when you can't just like schedule a conference room and a client can come in, I think if, if anything, everybody just misses the ability to be together. So, but I think overall there's been, you know, nobody's fighting over conference rooms that are overbooked, but um, I think ultimately everyone stayed connected uh, and when in, uh, in, in, in productive and positive ways. I typically like to end with a couple of questions. One is, what are your favorite tools to use right now in your work? We actually, we've done a similar interview questionnaire with people and we've, I, I'm, I'm used to asking the question, not answering it. You know, at the end of the day, like I'm a, I've, uh, I'm a compulsive drawer and sketcher. So a pen and pencil, and paper or any combination of that always is the most, uh, the, if I'm having trouble communicating something to a designer or a colleague, I'll just draw it out and it, it resolves itself. Oh, very cool. And the last question, what is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? Nicest thing anyone's ever done for me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we get we get a lot of different uh, answers to that one. It can go it can go pretty deep. It can go not so deep, but yeah. You know, I'm trying to think of a really good compliment someone gave me once, but I'm trying to. Uh, well, we can go back to that. A friend of mine, I was I just watched Russian Doll, and I was catching up with this friend, and I was like, oh, I just like want to be like Natasha Leone. Like I just like I was just like completely captivated by the originality. Yeah series and all this and she goes you know he's like yeah i just like i love her voice like such a cool voice it's like well you're like five cigarettes away from the chillion and i was like thank you that was really nice <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i'm nearly as cool as natasha leon so uh, I'll, I'll take it yeah that's such a great performance of that show cool well i i think this is a good good place to stop thank you so much matthew for unpacking a little bit about what you do, what you're working on and everything. Um, and uh, it'd be great to have you again. So maybe we can talk a little bit more in depth about, about content strategy specifically. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, thank you for having me. And it was great to hear from uh, 
Chloe, former Archetizer, who uh, made the recommendation. So, um, yeah, looking forward to talking. Yeah, Chloe on the on the monograph team. She's a rock star. She's awesome. So, yeah, so for everybody, this has been Best Practice. Thank you, Matthew, so much. And uh, thanks, everyone. Cheers. All right. Thanks, George. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.